Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this week's episode, game designer Brent Ferguson and composers George Reed and Matthew Ferrandino discuss their chiptune rearrangements of canonical and marginalized composers' music for the Bardcore Video Game Project. My name is Brent Ferguson, and I'm the game developer for the Bardcore Project. So you just heard Beethoven's pathetic first movement. My name is Matthew Ferrandino. I'm a composer, arranger, and sound designer for the Bardcore Project. And my name is George Reed, and I'm also a composer, arranger, and sound designer for the Bardcore Project. And I'd like you to imagine, lovely listeners, what Debussy's Claire de Lune might sound like if its notation were to be fed through the sound chip of the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or SNES, video game console from 1991. Such remixes exist out there already, as even a quick search of Debussy's SNES remix on YouTube or SoundCloud would reveal. But the chances of hearing such a remix of a historically marginalized composer, excluded from the dogma of classical music canon, is much less likely. Such chiptune remixes and the history they resynthesize are key components to the in-game mechanics of Bardcore, a video game which doesn't just refuse to give up the ghost, namely those of classical music canon and video game music history, but a video game that very deliberately and musically plays with them. The Bardcore project was something that I conceptualized and developed to be a musical-themed 1990s-style Japanese role-playing game or JRPG, akin to Final Fantasy, Breath of Fire, or the Dragon Quest series. Playable protagonists include historically marginalized composers such as Margaret Bonds, Lily Boulanger, and Ignatius Sancho, while antagonists are made up of canonical composers such as DBC, Beethoven, and the entire Bach family. The music composed for Barcore consists of arrangements of these and other composers' works by both George Reed and Matthew Ferrandino, the other two on this podcast. As composers, scholars, our collaborative work on Bardcore has engendered new reflections on our approach to timbral nuance. It has also opened avenues of discussion around the sensitive subjects of canonicity and authenticity, both of which had an impact on our sense of play. In composing these arrangements, yet they lingered also as specters over our work. Our episode is split into three parts. We first provide an overview of our compositional approach to the music of Bardcore, in particular, the utilization of the SNES timbral aesthetics and our own personal attachments to them. We next discuss the significance of these timbral aesthetics in relation to the game mechanics and narrative of Bardcore, shedding light on the game's approach to the classical music canon and the ways in which we toy with aspects of authenticity, history, and memory. We then end our episode with a broader discussion about the aims of the Bardcore project and the gamification of music history, considering the broader implications of technology, enhanced music education, and accessibility. The music both before the episode and during the breaks are all arranged for this project by both George and Matthew. In this break, you'll hear Justin Holland's Andante. 
What's it like to work with the Super Nintendo aesthetic? What did you like and dislike? I think they're good starting questions for this, especially since you are the people making music. Well, I mean, whenever I think of anything chiptune-related and fun is the immediate answer, just because everything sounds so cute, if that's not a really silly way um, to talk about it. And the SNES is, an, is a really interesting one because it's entirely sample-based, and that's to say uh, not real-time synthesized waveforms as in subtractive or frequency modulation synthesis. So due to memory constraints, video game composers working with the SNES would have had really small snippets uh, of audio to work with and had to think about how to manipulate them towards sounding musical or to make them sound fluid or just good in general, uh, really. So Matthew and I primarily utilized uh, Plogue Technologies Chipsynth SFC virtual synthesizer for this project, um, which very faithfully emulates the SPC 700 chip of the original SNES. And what I quite liked was sound designing and composing in a way where I thought, okay, we're, we're taking these old samples and reusing them, but Plogue's VST allowed us to deliberately leave in bits of what might be considered error um, by more polished contemporary standards, uh, which foregrounded the SPC-700's distinct way of mediating audio. So, for example, um, when you sample things like strings or chords and you loop them, um, you can hear the ticking over of the sample loop point. And I didn't want to smooth that out because it created its own musically interesting textures, um, as well as channel the ghosts associated with that form of chip sound. Uh, Matt, I wonder if you also found that to be the case. Yeah, certainly. Um, I could jump in with my experience capitalizing on the glitchiness of the whole looping system uh, in the VST itself. So one of the examples um, that comes to mind, I was arranging Joseph Ballone's violin concerto and accidentally, uh, when I was choosing the timbres in the VST, um, accidentally knocked the loop point on the sample. Um, so this happens in the melody line. So the loop has this kind of like at the end of each sample if you hold down uh, like a MIDI key um, as it's playing. So it worked out, ended up, it ended up working out really nice though because it fit the tempo. So it ended up being this extra rhythmic layer that I hadn't intended on doing. It actually ends up sounding, I think, like a, an intentional tremolo effect. So there are certain affordances like that where it's like such a happy mistake that happens and it's all part of that sample-based looping that you mentioned. Yeah, I found this is also the case with the, the echo. I, I love the way the SNES does that. Um, just, just so unique and kind of in and of itself has a unique timbral quality, right? It's not just a repeated signal. The, the way the SPC chip processes it and it lends it that kind of distinct SNES sound. And uh, on Plogue's chipsynth, you have that option. You, if you load in an original SNES game music file, you can not only grab the instrumental samples, and but you can also grab the parameters of the echo. So um, that in itself was quite magical and certainly something that I uh, exercised in Bardcore. Excellent. Let's go into the compositions that you chose for each of the composers, because we were dealing with a lot of pre-existing music for this. Uh, I chose some of the compositions, of course, but I gave you free reign to choose what you wanted to rearrange. What went into that process? How has it been arranging it? What issues did you run into? What joys did you run into? Yeah, I can start with one thing I've noticed um, in this, this project. In some cases, the pieces we chose were really clear video game-esque examples, like this composer's piece just sounds like video game music, and I don't really need to do much to manipulate it. But there were a lot of, and in particular, high classical era examples and pieces, for me at least, didn't really work. 
or they didn't work too well. So for example, one of the ones I had trouble with was Haydn's Symphony 83 or the Hen Symphony. This was challenging to turn into boss music. I think mainly because of the regular phrase structure or kind of this classical period style. Uh, J.C. Bach's Second Symphony was also a tough one to make into overworld music. And I think that, that one in particular was due to the squareness of the rhythm and meter. Everything was very kind of metrically aligned in like kind of this uh, very simple meter. Um, one of the things, though, that became really clear from this project is that video games use a lot of syncopation. And this, again, it's one of the problems with the, the J.C. Bach Symphony. Um, so video game music, they tend to avoid cadences as well. Um, and a lot of time, this is to keep the loop nature of the cues going. So taking something where it's employing a classical phrase model, classical harmony, classical function, trying to put that into a video game aesthetic, was sometimes it felt like we're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. But I think it ended up creating a unique synthesis of the two styles where it's like, okay, this sounds like a Haydn string quartet movement because it is, but then repurposing it with those SNES timbres and evoking that video game aesthetic creates a really a new object and a new text to play with. Yeah, I like the analogy of uh, the square peg in the round hole. I mean, for me personally, I could not help, and especially after seeing um, the wonderful work you've done, Brent, on, on Bardcore, like the visuals and, and the kind of game that it was, um, but I couldn't help thereafter but listen to every piece uh, filtered through a video game lens, <laughs> and some stuff just so beautifully fits. Uh, Edmund Dege's El Pronunciamento, for instance, um, which to me, I listened to it, and it was just so intuitive. It sounded like, okay, this music belongs in an in-game level that's made of biscuits and candy and icing, and it sort of reminded me of uh, the Mickey Mouse World of Illusion video game. Uh, that wasn't Super Nintendo, but those kinds of visuals really leapt out as I was listening. Um, so in that piece, it was very much, okay, what instrument patches conjure sweets, sugar, syrup? Um, and, and I know these are not exactly specifically musical terms, but it was always that kind of stuff that sort of popped up in my mind. Um, metaphorical stuff and timbre and metaphor coincide so well. Timbre is something we can't help but sometimes describe in extra musical terminology. And yeah, some pieces just so beautifully fit with a video game format and aesthetic. And then other pieces, for example, I mean, Central Park in the Dark, my goodness, uh, the video game filter just shut off. So trying <laughs> trying to arrange its very complicated and complex textures through SNES timbres. I mean, the laptop was starting to smoke. I needed a drink um, and possibly a lie down <laughs> afterwards. It's, it was, so sometimes it was certainly more intuitive than others, certainly. But it's funny, as you said, part of that joy and that surprise is just how naturally a lot of this stuff has a very playful video game kind of feel to it, very easily adaptable. Yeah, I feel like I was thinking a lot through like a similar video game lens. Um, you know, what could I make sound like, for example, battle music from Final Fantasy or Breath of Fire? Or what could I make sound like world map music from games like Soul Blazer or Act Razor? Uh, so it was interesting linking that sort of nostalgic element, but also wrestling with what seemed to fit with the pieces we picked and their context in the Bardcore game. Like, so what, what their purpose was for the queue. And sometimes it worked well. Sometimes I feel like maybe it was lacking or it could have been slightly more video game-y or video game-esque or possibly slightly more in tune with the original or true to the original. I don't know. It was it was an interesting navigation between those two sort of uh, places for me. Sure. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned nostalgia. I certainly think we're going to touch upon that later. But um, I am curious, Matt, I, with the boss battle stuff, um, did you find there were pieces that were like, 
okay, how do I achieve this rearrangement for a boss battle aesthetic without just going, oh, I know, I need to find a sound called timpani. <laughs> yeah, timpani or like a, an ominous organ sound. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, for the boss music uh, and the random battle music as well, anytime it was in a major key or went to a major key, I had to stop myself from thinking, you know, this doesn't sound ominous enough um, or, or doesn't, you know, warrant itself in, in the right context here. Uh, but I didn't want to just, you know, change it to minor and be like, okay, now it's evil boss music because that just seems a bit simplistic. Um, and one of them that comes to mind was uh, Leopold Mozart's Burlesque Symphony, uh, which has this very classical fanfare opening and playful melody. Um, so instead of trying to make it, you know, force it into like a, a kind of like a really jaunty Final Fantasy battle, like epic ride, um, I ended up just, just emphasizing the playfulness instead. So kind of going the opposite with it. Um, so using SNES timbres that, that felt more playful or were kind of, uh, I don't want to say goofy, that makes it sound uh, not as good, but um, playful. I like playful. I also emphasized the march feel to kind of repurpose it as random battle music in this case. So this was an interesting component to the arranging. You know, how can I make something that doesn't sound like it would fit, fit? Um, and I think a lot of the solution for me was playing with timbre and adding percussion and grooves in, in particular to them. I think I like goofy. In my opinion, I think it's it's a <laughs> okay. lovingly used term. Um, it's, it's, as I said earlier, chip tune is, is fun and playful. That's what immediately comes to mind. And it's interesting what you were saying about not wanting to go for the straightforward transposition uh, idea. I found that particularly with Claire de Lune, especially when I was looking through the cues and I saw that um, uh, Debussy boss music. What's the Claire de Lune? <laughs> and I, I saw, I, which is of course is a, is a very serene piece of time. But um, the way I went for it was thinking about creating juxtaposition when possible. So I wanted a lot of uh, contrast. Um, and with some areas I could completely remix ideas or had stuff that's more percussively driven and things like arpeggios for the pace. And then all of a sudden cutting to a more serene, a serene, excuse me, um, section, um, just for that kind of contrast and that kind of uh, pacing. And we might talk more about this later, but um, the fact that you're taking something that's so well established and surrounded by its mythos and historicity and not only flipping it on its head by putting it through the SNES chip, but also the rearrangement process as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that's so interesting. You know, what, what just came and flashed into my head was Wendy Carlos switched on Bach, which is basically what we're doing in this. Chipped on Bach. There we go. I think I think chipped on Bach would be a really good tagline uh, for the Barnacle project. It's interesting in that regard because I mean you get into the Adorno and Eisler composing for the films argument, this real heavy critique because you know just because you're chopping up the greats and things like that. Uh, but it's already been proven enough, like in multimedia, by plenty of scholars that if anything, TV and film has only helped interest in classical music and video games as well in that regard. Yeah, I recall when we discussed the project as we were developing it, um, we touched upon arguments around authenticity and the timbre, uh, thinking through scholars like Richard Taruskin and uh, Isabella Van, El Van Elfren's research on timbre especially. Of course, what we're doing is overtly playful and slightly subversive, and I'll, and I'll hold my hands up because for me, um, even chip-tuning these pieces has been quite an education. It's been amazing because... I'm a music technologist foremost. Um, and this kind of history was not something that was heavily present in my education up until now, at least in this depth. So 
initially I felt doubly sort of, oh my goodness, how dare I, you know, clutching my pearls <laughs> and everything. But um, but that absolutely dissolved through musical play and being playful with music and through the agency of ludomusicality. Yeah, so not, not only can you play the video game, but our choice, I think, of, this, of the SNES ties in with this idea of being playful and fun as well. And then in choosing what pieces to do for each composer was, at least for me, another element of play. Um, some cases I went with like standard textbook pieces. Other times I dug into some more uh, obscure opus numbers uh, for these composers. Yeah, we mentioned nostalgia briefly earlier as well. I think that's, for me, played um, a key role in what I've, I've done on the project. But I'm wondering amongst all of us, um, was, this, was that something you found to be quite a driving force in how you arranged the pieces and, and particularly uh, in terms of how you use chip synth, perhaps, and the overall playfulness of the project? Yeah, for me, the, the timbres I chose, uh, most of them, the majority of them I basically took from games that I remember or games that I still return to and play. Uh, so some of the some of the titles that were big for me were uh, Soul Blazer, Secret of Mana, Mega Man X, um, and so on. Uh, actually, a lot of the timbres in Soul Blazer show up in my cues, especially the slap bass sound that that comes in a lot. Um, I also use the snare sound from that game almost exclusively, not totally, but it's it's definitely one of the crispest or actually sounding like a snare samples on the snares that I've heard or encountered so far. Secret of Mana is great, too, because it has a lot of kind of really interesting instrumental timbres in their musical cues. Um, I'm curious, Brent, if I can ask you a question. Uh, we're throwing these cues at you, and now we're up in, like, the 60s or 70s. I think our, our total number now is at 80 um, for when we're, uh, you know, yes. put full stop on the project. Um, are there any that, that, you know, for you, this sounds like this is from this game that I remember? Or, you know, what kind of nostalgic turns did you experience or are you experiencing? So I grew up with these games as well. It's one of the reasons I chose the aesthetic overall and the game design as well. So it's it's why I continue to choose that aesthetic. So y'all have me wax nostalgic every time I listen to these games. So it's really nice. I mean, I hear bits of influences of everything. It's also their canonical pieces and non-canonical pieces that we're hearing pit through this kind of filter. And it's pretty amazing for me. Yeah. If you say... Video games is what got me into music. It's the same for me as well. second break you just heard margaret bond's troubled water all right so we're talking primarily about authenticity in this part and tamral significance of that so i guess the first question that i'll ask both of you is whenever you are engaged in making the chiptune aesthetic there's a difference in the field between i guess what some might consider authentic chiptune and what is called fake bits i'm very much on the side that it doesn't matter for the most part but and that can be left up for grabs or whatever, but what method did you engage in? Did you actually go in with trackers to make your chiptune or was it more of a synthesis and digital audio workstation or DAWs and something like Reason? What processes did you go to make the SNES chiptune sound? I know virtual studio technologies or VSTs 
were used in some of this as well. Yeah, well, the, the authenticity question is always a thorny one, and I'm on the same side, really, in, in my own chiptune practice and in my research, and this is why I think timbre is so important. I, I don't really care how it's made. If it sounds like chiptune, I'm probably going to love it, and it is chiptune, in my opinion. Um, you know, I've, I've met some people who don't even consider what the SNES does chiptune because it's more, like, sample-based. And, you know, everyone, of course, is entitled to their opinions um, and their approaches, and that's fine, provided they aren't actively excluding people, and the discourse surrounding that can become quite toxic at times. But for this project, and with Tambra as the main focus, um, I was mainly working in the Logic Pro digital audio workstation, and as I mentioned earlier, was using uh, exclusively Plogue's uh, Chipsynth SFC, because as I mentioned, I really love how accurately, and I just want to say I'm not on commission, um, <laughs> I should add, but just how accurately that that vst just captures the snes sound that kind of muffled sound um there's not a lot of high end on the samples not a lot not a lot of crispness at times and of course there's that gorgeous echo right yeah and it's it's funny because i hadn't consciously thought about that muffled quality of of the timbres uh from that vst until you just mentioned it but it was certainly certainly a characteristic and i think that it kind of ties in all of our our cues together. Yeah, I think the reason that really stuck out to me was because I, I really love sample-based chiptunes. I adore sample-based chiptunes. And um, I grew up with the Commodore Amiga computer and the Amiga sound chip, or Paula, I believe it was known, uh, which is fabulous. It sounds, you know, just, it's just a, a wonderful name for a computer sound chip. Um, <laughs> but the sound chip uh, adds a lot of aliases and like crisp high-end uh, to the audio sample. So whenever I used to compare like video game soundtracks between games on the Commodore Amiga and then their conversion to the snares or vice versa. Um, the unique muffledness is quite present in the latter. Um, so the nostalgic element is different for me there because like there's a very subtle timbral shift. Um, but I think what I was focusing on within Logic was how do I arrange this as if I were using a tracker, right? As you have within a modern door, you have so many opportunities and you can have any number of um, uh, like instrument tracks, right? Um, because trackers are normally what I use if I'm doing um, like subtractive based chiptune or frequency modulation based chiptune. Um, I prefer to use trackers for that. But for samples, it's a bit of a different method. Um, how did you find this, Matt? For me, I would actually compose things out in Sibelius first. Um, so I would have a score and then move that into Reaper um, and choose timbres um, using the Chipsynth SFC. So I would have a score just so that I could see the individual lines. And for the most part, I treated the lines as monophonic lines. Um, that was just to keep me in line and reined in, as it were. There were a few cases though where I did do some polyphonic stuff, but that was fairly rare. Um, I decided, though, to limit myself to eight monophonic voices for a lot of the cues. Um, and I also separated drums out. So snare drums would be a track, bass or kick drum would be a track, hi-hat or tambourine or whatever. Um, again, a separate track and so on. So each percussion timbre got its own track, which probably isn't utilizing all of what the SNES could do. But for me, it kept things organized. Um, and a lot of the fun, I think, for me was how could I get that video game aesthetic or the SNES aesthetic from these compositions? Sometimes you're just looking at a piano part thinking, what voices can I pull out of this that would sound good in like that faux clarinet sound? Um, 
that that we get on the SNES, which has this very low attack. It has weird breathy kind of characteristics. It crescendos at the beginning. Um, so that was my process. First, writing them as individual lines or tracks, then taking those tracks into Reaper or into a DAW and saying, okay, well, what timbres would work well here or what timbres would make this sound like battle music or like a dungeon cue? So I don't know if that was similar to your approach or not, George. Yeah, similar. I mean, like you, I, I broke down the score in MuseScore, which is basically um, a uh, also a music arrangement software like Sibelius, uh, just to rearrange bits, or I would arrange it in Logic and then go even further with cutting sections up or like um, doing stuff to the MIDI. Um, so it's interesting what you're saying, and uh, some of the drum stuff especially resonated with me. I, I, I quite liked the use of sound effects or one sample for multiple parts as more percussive uh, based things. Um, I did this for Claire de Lune, for example, uh, where I would have the snare sample that if it's played at a lower register, it sounds a bit more like a kick drum. And that same sample pitched higher would sound more like a snare at its original sample rate. So for me, I wanted to be slightly obvious that this is the same sample because again, it's timbre, it has that kind of snares effect. And so while we're not composing what some might call authentic chiptune, and for the listeners, I am doing the quotation marks with my fingers, um, uh, in the sense that it's not a tracker sequencer or we're not using the original hardware but an emulation, I think we are being authentic, if you want to really use that term in a very roundabout way, to a certain timbral aesthetic or a way of audio processing. And I think that was our main goal here. And I think that's where the sense of authenticity is much more playful, really, because uh, you can still join in regardless of what you're, you know, what you're using. And especially when it came to thinking about, do I adhere more to how this composer would have arranged something like this or the original piece? Or do I go, no, no this sounds immediately like video game music and I'm going to do this and that's that, you know, um, was that kind of playfulness there for you as well. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and I think the authenticity question for me is very similar. Um, it was less to do with like, am I doing this appropriately for chiptune culture? I was more of the mind, does this sound like video game music? And that was the hurdle for me. So it was more kind of my own personal authenticity barrier. Depending on the composer, though, I sometimes went out of my way to make it what they wouldn't have done, or at least what I imagine they wouldn't have done. I know for me, there were a lot of Wagner cues for whatever reason um, that I did where I was like, I have to do something to make this fit within a video game aesthetic. So sometimes there was some stripping of material. I changed harmonies around. Uh, some other elements of comp recomposition were were involved in, in, in my arrangements for those. But I would say for the most part, yes, I was authentic, at least to the stylistic period that they were writing in. In other words, if you listen to it or you listen to one of the cues, you might recognize the tune from, let's say, a Telemann flute sonata or a Wagner overture. Um, but this is also a really hard question to answer because I feel like it kind of depended on my mood. Uh, sometimes I was more playful in arranging and sometimes I was more just like, OK, I can cut and paste and put this here. As you mentioned, like, I'm going to do this, 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 this and this, and then it's going to come out as video game music. So I feel like there are a lot more factors than just kind of authenticity um, at play in terms of the approaches that, that I took, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the mood thing, certainly, I think, as I mentioned earlier, Central Park in the dark, you can probably hear that I was, <laughs> I was, I was a bit more frustrated when um, doing certain cues than others, certainly. And in, a, in a dark place. In a very dark place. Yeah. <laughs> um, Central Park in the abyss, I think. <laughs> um, 
Well, and I, I think yeah, there, there is more to it. I, I mean, we touched on North, um, nostalgia before, right? And I, and that's something that elicits play in the, in this uh, context. And of course, chip tune is not all about nostalgia either. And I have to stress that because um, you know there are some people that are very keen to distance themselves from nostalgia in both academic publishing contexts, so in in texts by Alex Yabsley and uh, Chris Tanelli, for example, and also in chiptune scene discourse. Um, I'd like to give a shout out actually at this point to a fabulous chip musician and friend of mine, Frono Krieger, which is a play on Frono Krieger. Um, <laughs> please check out their work. But we discussed the nostalgia issue a lot and particularly the kind of essentialist thinking that chiptune is automatically about video games and childhood, um, which obfuscates a lot of um, and in participation and artistry in the scene, especially in relation to demographics uh, and marginalization. Um, so Throner and I are particularly interested in feeling nostalgic for times and places we never knew, right? And chipching plays a big part in that for us. And as we've discussed with Bardcore, our nostalgia very much plays a part of it, but it's not quite a straightforward case of childhood memories and missing those times per se. But I do think nostalgia is all too often seen as something that is a, a hindrance or something that stops you. Um, whereas I think in this context and in relation to authenticity, uh, it's, it's been something that has been playful. It's perhaps what Svetlana Boyne might call reflective nostalgia, right? Not restorative nostalgia. It's not about restoring a mourned past and grafting it onto the, pe uh, the present, regardless of consequences. Um, this might also then lead into the topic of canonicity, perhaps, and uh, historically informed performances, uh, with timbre playing a big role in that as well. But Bardco, I, I think, is very much reflective, toying with the power of what if, and I, I don't think respectful is the right word, but you know we are we're certainly uh, taking creative liberty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we're not being disrespectful either. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I felt I felt authentic rearranging these pieces because we were being playful and enjoying ourselves. I think that's where the word comes in, really. One of the discussions in chiptune that might not be familiar in the music theory community is the difference between authentic composition of chiptunes, this authenticity argument versus what's called fake bit, or the practice of emulating the aesthetic rather than programming it or using a tracker, like we've talked about before. George, can you tell us a little more about this uh, idea? Gladly, sure. Um... And as I sort of touched upon earlier, this is a bit of a hot subject, to say the least, and one that can become uh, quite toxic in chiptune discourse. Uh, for those of you interested in reading further on this, I want to highlight the research of Marilo Porimero Paolo, uh, who has written on this quite extensively and has uh, documented how each generation of chiptune participants, or what I call chippies, um, of which I'm proudly am one, mm -hmm. um, carry varying opinions on the subject. So for anybody who is interested, the article is entitled Chip Music, fake bit and the discourse of authenticity in the chip scene. Um, of course, opinion is not so rigidly set or homogenous among each generation of chiptune participants. Um, that would be an essentialism to say so. Um, but it might be worth expanding even on the term chiptune here, actually, uh, because even this can be a point of contention for some. And I think expanding on this will help lay the grounds a bit more. So, 
chiptune as a term very much alludes to the technical aspects that give it its timbral character. Uh, it has its origins in the kinds of sounds that you would have heard emanating from early home computers and video game consoles of the 20th century. So the video game music or chiptune that you hear in the likes of Pac-Man or Super Mario, Sonic the Hedgehog, um, which basically came about through memory saving techniques in audio production. So within the game system or home computer, there would be a, a little sound chip. It was basically a mini synthesizer and code within the game would trigger it to generate very timbrely distinct bleepy bloopy music in real time. Um, so it's kind of a world away from the studio polished recording and production that goes into AAA games these days. Yeah. So this would have been the quote unquote original method of generating chiptune. And then through subcultural appropriation um, in the mid-1980s uh, of these kinds of chip-based musical technologies became a means of self-expression, right? And over the years, of course, this kind of technology, as we all do, it gets old. Uh, it dies out. It needs to be maintained. I know the agony of having floppy disks on which I've composed stuff on my, on my old Amiga. They die. You know, um, it's the beauty and the sadness of them. Um, so naturally, things like sampling uh, or emulating these sound chips on more modern computers became a thing and something that's uh, more viable, not just to the wallet, um, but also interacting with these kinds of sounds is less laborious. And particularly because chiptune, as I mentioned, was coded through a tracker sequencer. Um, which in itself was like a very early version of a digital audio workstation. And instead of inputting musical notes, you would have to type the code, right? And of course, not having the knowledge of these codes, you can just pull up a VST or grab a sample, right? So there's a lot of discussion about sampling chiptune or emulating tracker sequences or generating it via a VST. And people very hotly debate about whether it's really, quote unquote, I'm doing the fingers thing again, <laughs> whether it's really authentic. And with some irony, of course, right? Because chiptune <laughs> back in the day was a cheap way of making music. If you had a home computer and you couldn't afford synthesizers, recording equipment, and you know, and now all of that original hardware, chiptune hardware, is beyond expensive to purchase, to maintain, and there's a lot of elitism and cultural capital around it, right? Yes. So I think, as we said earlier, when we talk about chiptune and the fake bit, we're very much in the camp of, well, if it sounds like it, it is chiptune. Um, and if you can make it via any accessible means, then go for it. I think that's the crux of it. Um, so I think one thing we're hitting on, and this is also the reason why I highlighted Isabella Van Alfren's uh, research on timbre and also goth music, is that chiptune, like goth, and believe I am going somewhere with this comparison, but trust me on this, because um, they, they might be the antithesis, but they share a lot, um, because they both very much revel in the excess of their own technological mediality. Um, for chiptune, the technologies, whether that is the physical hardware or something that's been painstakingly emulated, is something that puts front and center the fact that this is the sound of a certain kind of audio mediation, something that is obsolete, something that is resplendent in its anachronisms, in its errors, you might say, right? And what I was thinking about a lot reading this research, and especially in relation to Bardcore, was the concept of hauntology. 
So just as a quick preface, Van Elfren discusses timbre in relation to Jacques Derrida's concept of hauntology. And some of you might have heard of this term because it has become something of a buzzword uh, of late. You see it pretty much everywhere. Um, it's often used to describe like a certain musical genre or a certain kind of aesthetic. But in the Derridian sense, it's not haunting in the sense of the supernatural. It refers to, and specifically in uh, Van Elfren's research, the fact that music and sound and timbral quality inescapably conjure associations based on previous experience. I mean, listeners, we might all think about hearing a song uh, that we've not heard for a while, and all the associations and feelings come rushing back as though they've never left. But we all know that, right? This, that's just, But the point of hauntology is that it's not just straight up remembrance. There is a distortion that happens with memory, um, including things like remembering things that didn't happen. As we mentioned earlier, feeling nostalgic for things that haven't happened or that take place in fantasy, um, which I think we can all associate with video games in a certain way. So what we are doing with this, I think, in relation to chiptune and canon, very specifically relates to the hauntology of that history, playing with it, distorting with it, um, setting the ghosts free and playing with them, right? Uh, so did, did anything kind of stir with you both? One thing that stuck out to me uh, was a Lawrence Kramer quote referring to any sort of recreation or any performances of music as a practical necromancy which I don't know why, but that just kind of really resonated in a somewhat macabre way um, with, with what we're doing in Bardcore, some, some kind of practical necromancy. But we are, we are revivifying these pieces from the canon, um, some more at the top of the canon than others, but this idea that we're taking something that is a score, which is essentially a meaningless artifact, and putting meaning into it by, by kind of creating these performances through the SNES. Um, and through these arrangements, we're kind of bringing them back to life in a new way. And I thought that was such an interesting way to think about it, this idea that we're kind of these chiptune necromancers taking these pieces and bringing them to life as video game cues. And, and I think it is, it is very performative, despite the fact that, you know, we're working in DAWs and everything is somewhat fixed. You know, we're, we're working with MIDI tracks and things and moving back and forth between softwares. But there's that element of play in the recreation of this music. Um, we had a lot of play, you know, with what chambers we chose, what pieces we chose, how we're going to arrange these pieces. So that was something that I thought was a very fascinating way to think about Bardcore as practical necromancy. Yeah, I was, I was, also, I was going to say, if you wanted to collaborate on a chip to Necromancer's <laughs> album, I think that'd be great. Um, maybe a future project, who knows? Um, and I think what you were saying on that was so interesting because, well, canonicity in itself is a hauntology. Um, the maintaining of that history, retold over time, uh, reaffirmed continuously by discourse, by uh, historically informed or supposedly accurate performances, which um, in and of themselves um, always have distortions and differences in their in their repetitions somewhere. Um, the thing that struck me, as you said, about the score and even aspects of musicology is the almost dogmatic respect of the score and its sterility. Uh, and when in and of itself, it's not a musical material, it's inert, right? It's not animated. Uh, and so I guess we're kind of reanimating things through um, what Van Elfren has described as hauntography. So this is a play on the words haunting and calligraphy. 
And it's basically the medium aware use of transmitting technologies in order to foreground certain aesthetics or to let the certain ghosts free. So what I love about this, and especially in relation to the mechanics of Bardcore, which I think Brent, maybe you can uh, uh, pick up on after, after I discuss this point, um, is that we're sort of destabilizing canonicity through not just what we're doing in the composition, it's also a part of the game's mechanics to bring other ghosts to the fore, right? Those that have been left out of canon. Um, so I think that's a really nice dovetail between what we're doing in terms of composition and the broader mechanics of the game. Yeah, I'd be glad to pick up from there. As coming from the game developer side, the whole idea of this is trying to decenter the canon as much as possible by using certain canonical composers from the mainly Germanic and Euro-American canon of white men essentially as enemies, as antagonists that trap contemporaries in crystals and use them to power their own compositions. And you're one of these composers trapped by the final boss. And you're released at the beginning uh, by this black cat, actually, um, that will play a larger role as you move on. Uh, you get to name this composer later, but the default name is a few thousand-year-old Ethiopian composer, Mabuba. The plot is that you take over as this main character, releasing other composers. These contemporaries that have been hidden behind these canonical composers. And as you release them, their music takes over in these areas for the canonical composers. Also, you have different books that teach about these composers throughout. So it's a little bit of a history game as well. You'll learn about the canonical composers, of course, but the main thing is that you try to learn about these composers from the margins, from the periphery. That's what we're trying to recensor your main party of allies. And that is what Bardcore boils down to. For this next break, you'll hear Isabella Leonardo's O Anima Mea. talking about the narrative of Ardcore and how all three of us got to work with both canonical and marginalized composers. So I'd like to ask both of you, what did you learn from this process of arranging both the canonical or the modulized composers as you went through this by working with their music, by pitting it through the synthesis? I'll leave it to y'all now. Well, as I said to you initially, um, even composing and arranging for this has been an education in and of itself. Um, I'm not shy of the fact that this is, this is not really my background and not really my area. So to have the opportunity to not just dive into this history and learn about marginalised composers, but to take all of these works apart and kind of figure things out for myself was something that was really eye-opening. In particular, and I, I guess this probably links back to the narrative of Bardcore, but noticing the composition style of the more marginalised composers, how they write, and then thinking about that in contrast to the more well-established canonical figures was something really interesting in terms of that 
kind of contrast. Um, Matt, I don't know if you found the same in like comparing between the sort of giants of canon and the outliers. So, so it's interesting, George, that you bring up the idea of comparing them because it's not something I had really thought about in terms of how I was arranging the cues or how I was approaching them. But one of the challenges was just the number of available scores to choose from. Uh, so for example, it's really incredibly easy to sift through the Mozart family scores on IMSLP looking for something that would make a good video game cue. But looking for, say, an Emily Giuliani piece was incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, IMSLP has two scores only. So that was definitely a limitation or inequality that kind of came to the surface here. Um, and I think we ended up using both of them uh, as our cues for uh, the mm -hmm. Giuliani cues. Um, but I think I think once the game is ready to play and it's available, that, that could be something to kind of weave into the narrative that would be an interesting discussion point. I know the music, as you mentioned, will change after you defeat or you dethrone a canonical composer and it gets replaced with the marginalized composer's music. So that might be something where maybe the dialogue in the towns with non-player characters or NPCs can reflect that change in some way. Um, I think that would be an interesting way to kind of flesh out this idea of comparing these compositional giants, as you call them, of the canon and the outliers. Yeah, I think that also relates back to the mechanics. Like once you set these composers free, their, their musicality is something that's given back to them. Um, but it's funny, you said as well, likewise, I went straight to the marginalized composers. There was a real curiosity there. Uh, I think I think my first one was Lily Boulanger. Uh, I don't know what it was, it was just something in the name that just struck me uh, when I was looking through the cue sheet. Um, the others, uh, the more well-established sort, and this links back to what we said before with the hauntology aspect, um, the specter of those great works and those composers were kind of hanging over me and with a sort of heavier, really strange sense of responsibility and thinking, oh my goodness, um, strangely off-putting in some instances I found, or more laboured. Right. Um, Beethoven's Fifth springs to mind because that, that one um, I didn't have as much joy um, <laughs> at, at chip tuning. Um, but for the more marginalized composers, the element of play was certainly greater for me. Well, I think also that familiarity with some of the canonical pieces that were chosen does certainly does play a part. You might have recordings in mind. You may have performed the piece before. I don't think I performed anything that I've arranged, but that could be a factor. But those things kind of build up to create these, I guess, inhibitions to play. So it's kind of like deconstructing those barriers for the more canonical composers. That was that I felt like that was a necessary act or a hurdle that we had to get over um, to kind of get get to the end of the arrangements. But I do agree that it was less of a problem or I had more fun with working with the marginalized composers music. And partly, I think, was the discovery element of it. You know, it was new, it was fresh um, and it was educational. Yeah, exactly. And, and the word fun has come up a few times in this podcast already. And I think that's such a nice way of putting it. Not only that, but having a hands-on experience with these works was really lovely. And we might talk about um, edutainment in a moment. Um, but the hands-on way of playing with these materials and learning about them, um, as opposed to you know the authority of scholarly works that have been written about them and, and canon and that kind of specter um, when thinking about um, approaching these works or their what we might that horrible term so they come up again authenticity and yes I'm doing the fingers thing um, but, but you see where I'm coming from with this and I, I think the fun factor was the same it was much greater I found with the marginalized composers because it was the sense of the unknown that was quite nice and they surprised me constantly. That was really lovely. You brought up the word edutainment. So let's get into that a little bit. This is an idea I first came across from uh, first Karen Beckman's edited collection, 
animating film theory and specifically Marsha Kinder's presentation, Media Wars and Children's Electronic Culture. Talking about animated TV in the 90s with Carmen Sandiego as both entertainment and educational in that way. And how it strived to do that both through the animated TV series and the video game itself. So with this pretty much being a piece of edutainment, it is, I, I plan to make this freely available, a product that's free so it's really accessible. It seems like this could be an obvious question, but I want to pose it anyway. How do you think this could be used in musicological or music theory pedagogy? Well, I, I found there were two distinct ways that this project struck me. And uh, this is the first time really I've sort of dipped my toe uh, into the waters of this kind of product or composing for this kind of product um, and these kinds of mechanics. Uh, it's really opened my, my eyes in a number of ways, but certainly first of all, I'm often thinking about how we can enhance things like asynchronous learning mm. and resources for students to use outside of the classroom, outside of one-to-one -one tutorials and lectures, and how those can become engaging in a way that this information is not only accessible but interactive, uh, or perhaps the information is delivered in a way that's something more engaging than a textbook or just another PowerPoint or that kind of thing, right? And it's also something that I've found that projects like this, students just love to hear about, um, especially in terms of industry connections and post-university pathways. Um, and I'm going to use the word spectre again, because I'm sure we all recall that that thought of what's going to happen after university, you know, and, and, and the pathway ahead. And um, the you know students have a lot of anxiety around this and, and developing their own skills and what might come afterwards. And as such, Talking to them about projects like this is something that they're very interested in hearing about from the angles of uh, what we've been considering. So accessibility, inclusivity, diversity, um, the fact that you can actually, in terms of what you do creatively, use that as a platform for more political kinds of aspects or as a way of getting voices out there, whether that be your own or in terms of other communities, for example. So those are the two for me. I don't know if you found similar, Matt. Yeah, the student interest is definitely there. Um, at the beginning of the semester, when I introduced myself to new students, um, I mentioned the Bardcore project because it's been on my mind. It gives them a sense of you know where my creative and scholarly activities and output is is currently uh, headed. And I had students just shout out, "Hey, hey, when you need testers, you know, let me know," and like pointing to themselves and getting really excited about it. Um, also, I've had several students say uh, or come up to me and say something like, "I'm really into doing video game composition, and how do I get?" started or you know what are some things i should consider and and so that's been um opening avenues of discussion that probably wouldn't normally come up in a classroom setting um you know when we're dealing with functional harmony or talking about form and analysis or you know the history of whatever uh renaissance music and all that fun stuff but i can definitely see ways that these chiptune arrangements we've done could be used in the classroom like we could do a comparison with students uh give them an arrangement of this tune um, and now here's the original from like a YouTube recording or something. And what does it mean to have these two realizations or two performances? And I think those are those are great avenues of discussion for students to get really invested in and think critically about, uh, you know, music that they're listening to. It also opens the door because, again, of that playfulness. Um, and I don't want to say it erases or washes away some of the seriousness of the conversation. But I think it does wash away some of those, like you said, the hauntings of the canon and particularly in academia and scholarship, that kind of rigor or specter. 
Yeah, and, and I think video game music in general, I, I think a lot of us have spoken about this, um, is great in, a, in an educational context. And chiptune I found especially uh, because, and again, I've said this before in a loving way, it's fun. There's a silliness in a sense, and it's stripped back in a way that's musically accessible, but also uh, playful in both tech-based practical classes and musicology classes that I teach. Um, Chiptune, for example, has been quite useful um, in a module I teach called Synthesis, Sampling and Sequencing, which in and of itself, um, you know, learning about the principles of sound synthesis can be a bit dry. I mean, I, I personally could talk about it for hours, but, you know, um, but in the context of video games, you know, and getting them to understand, um, to use these techniques in like a modern digital audio workstation, Chiptune's been a great way for the content to be relatable, or they can understand how the practical, the theory, etc., relates to an industry-related product, right? Yeah, there's a there's a deeper point here that can be pulled out, and I think a lot of it is that music is fun, right? And studying music can be fun. I think that's important to note too. I mean, the the fact that we need to emphasize that, you know. <laughs> But, but this project and chiptune, I think, just just wears that kind of fun on its sleeve when it's playful, when it's open-ended, when it's accessible. And more broadly, whatever you're using to compose chiptune, join in. Please. Yeah. So we're talking about all these future prospects for this project, and it's really exciting to see it getting towards completion. Uh, and I really want to thank both of y'all for coming on here and talking about it and just being a part of this. We're having fun, and it's something that William Gibbons brings up. You know, music is fun. Music is play. And play, it's supposed to be fun as well, almost, <laughs> I guess you could say. But music is playing. And therefore, music can be fun in that regard, and we're having fun making this. I just want that to be carried across as well. When we meet, we're laughing. We're having a great time about it because we get to play with things that we've known for years and learned about or are learning about actively. We're playing with ghosts, and it's absolutely a ball to do. And with that, I guess I can give a little bit of a plug for another project that we're working on that follows Barkmore's vein of edutainment. And perhaps maybe we'll talk about this with an SMT pod at a later date. That will be up for them to decide. But we're also working on a game called Conductus, and it's very snarkily titled and spelled with C-O-N-D-U-C-K T-U-S. So you play as a duck <laughs> that's learning about musical concepts. And you do it through all sorts of different video games. So it will be free. It's also a love letter to ludomusicologists. There's actually a pretty large team of ludomusicologists, you know, people who study play and music uh, that are working on it. And once again, I'm the game developer, and I have a game development team as well this time. This one's being made in a larger editor called Unity rather than RPG Maker, which I'm using for Barcore at the moment. So it's being built a little more from the ground up than this one. Not to demean our Barcore project or anything like that. Conductus will take a little bit longer. But we're hoping for Barcore to be out soon, at least as a testable demo in 2024. And I just also want to thank the audience for joining us. For our last piece, you'll hear Florence Price's Adoration.
We would like to thank Jennifer Beavers and Megan Lyons for their role as editors for ST Pod. Our sincerest thanks to Peter Smucker for his supportive comments and critical suggestions to our early draft of our script. His input helped us to focus and clarify our episode. Visit our website, smt-pod.org, for show notes and supplemental materials. You can also learn how to submit your own episode proposal. Join in the conversation by tweeting us your comments and questions at smt underscore pod. SMT Pod's theme music was written by Zhang Cheng Lu, with closing music by David Voss. Thank you for listening.